Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, first this morning, I want to pray for a, uh, another church in our community. I want to pray for Kavanaugh United Methodist Church. And I want to pray for Jim Goodwin and for his family. I want to pray for his worship. Uh, pray for his marriage. Pray for his, um, his life that is fueled by worship and wonder. Pray that you will keep things fresh and new and uh, shocking. <laughs> and um, convicting and all those things that hopefully every preacher brings to the pulpit each week and uh, pray that you'll fuel that with what you're showing him in the word that the spirit will open the eyes of his heart uh, will wreck him with our need for the gospel uh, will bless him with your ample provision for salvation and the finished work of Christ and that that will gush over onto his marriage first onto his family, and then onto the church family that he serves. Lord, we pray that whatever way possible that we can serve well alongside Kavanaugh United Methodist and members that are members of that church, that we can work beside them, worshiping out loud, cheering for them, hoping and expecting great things for your namesake in and through that church. Lord, for this church this morning, I confess that I have... Um, I've kind of wrestled with the recognition that I'm insufficient and inadequate to communicate these truths. And our people are insufficient and inadequate to receive these truths. And it's in that recognition and confession that I ask for you to show up and open the eyes of our hearts. To do something that we can't muster. To reveal truth to us that's beyond us. Or we'll look at it and we will have preached it, we will have heard it, we will receive it, and we'll see that you were there, you were here this morning, and that you did a work that's beyond any one of us. Lord, I pray for clarity. I pray for the competition this morning of um, Super Bowl plans and potential distractedness. Lord, I uh, pray that you will just arrest us with the gravity of what we're talking about and engaging this morning. And that the Super Bowl will sit where the Super Bowl needs to go right now. And um, that we can be attentive and responsive for your name's sake. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> These last few weeks we've been considering obedience. John chapter 14 is kind of our home base this morning. It's really just kind of a springboard to where we're going for the rest of the, the morning. I'm begin with reading the passage. I'll tell you right now, too, I have the lights turned up a little bit today because I want you to be able to, to turn to the Word. We're, we're, going, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture this morning. As I prayed in a prayer, um, this would really be a potential Sunday for somebody to get lost or somebody to think, man, I'm not getting this. What is this even about? Um, so I'm thankful for God's sovereignty. I'm thankful for what I prayed for right off the bat, that you don't ever see anything except that God opens your eyes to see it. And I don't ever communicate anything that has any value except that he actually communicates it. So I'm liberated by that, but um, I just want to give you a heads up that we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture this morning. I'm going to try and hone you in on the things that you really need to look at. But John chapter 14 is where we begin. Uh, the context for this passage is in the final hours before Jesus goes to the cross. And uh, he's just communicated some wonderful truths to the, to the disciples. 
Uh, Judas has left the table, and they've been troubled by that. He encouraged them, actually charged them with a command. Don't stay troubled over this. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And there's going to be ample room. You don't have to worry about showing up, and there's no room in the inn because there'll be ample room for you. Um, and I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And that's where we pick up right here in John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I'm going to continue on with the red letters. If anyone loves me, in verse 23, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. A few things that we've gained these last couple of weeks from this passage on this series on obedience is kind of some foundational truths that the true lover owns God's ways as their very own and the true lover keeps God's ways and that God manifests himself to the true lover. God makes his home with that one. And what we considered last week is that him manifesting himself and him making his home with us is in contrary packaging. We'd like to think that that means that we're going to have the wind to our back fair winds and following seas from this point forward. But in fact, God manifests himself and he shows up in contrary packaging and things that we might in fact think that's a horrible thing. God shows up and does a mighty work in and through it. And then this week, we're going to look at actually how we obey, how obedience actually happens. So I'm going to read the passage again. And what I want you to do this time when I read this passage, I want you to pay attention to what appears to be conditional statements. A conditional statement would be like an if-then statement. If you do this, then God will do this. If-then statements are throughout our Bible, or these conditional, perceived conditional statements. So let's just, I'm going to read this passage again and just pay attention to what seems to be cause and effect. Okay? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will manifest myself to him. Continuing in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. We're going to draw out some of those uh, cause and effect pictures through the course of our study this morning. But I want to establish right off the bat that this passage here in John chapter 14 is completely true, but it doesn't reveal the truth completely, which is why I'm preaching this message this morning, which is why we're not just breezing on beyond it, because when we're talking about obedience, we need to bring in where we're going this morning. Today, we're going to deal with exactly how the true lover obeys God. And I want to tell you right up front, there are treasures in knowing who does what in this God-worshipper relationship. There are treasures in knowing who does what in this God-worshipper relationship. First, we're going to start with collecting some verbs having to do with man's responsibility. Turn to Joshua chapter 24. Where possible, I'll give you page numbers that are in your ESV, if you likely have most of the ESV Bibles, not all of them. If you have a study Bible, the page number won't work. But if you didn't bring your Bible and you have a Bible sitting in the pew back in front of you, you can grab that one and these page numbers will work as well. Page 198. <clears throat> Let me give you a little bit of context as you're turning there. The nation of Israel 
has been drawn out of Egypt. They've gone through the wilderness. They've crossed the Jordan on dry ground and gone into the promised land. They fit the battle of Jericho. They fought these other fights. They got their behinds handed to them by AI. But then they went on and completed the uh, inhabitation, I guess you would, you would say, of the promised land. And we're at the point here in Joshua chapter 24 where Joshua is reminding them of their covenant with God. Listen to what he says. I'm going to pick up in verse 14 of chapter 24. And I want you to collect verbs. I want you to collect obedience verbs that have to do with what the people of God are to do. Okay? Verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. It's like a Braveheart speech. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. Choose you this day whom you'll serve. Whether the gods your father served in the, in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in, the, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It just needs music behind it. Like a heavy drum beat. We will serve the Lord. So the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all these people, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he's our God. Now, here's the problem. Joshua said to the people, he said, you know what? You are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God and he will not forgive your transgressions or sins. You're not able to serve the Lord. He says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. The thing I want you to draw out of this passage, I want you to draw out our verbs. If we could climb into this passage and say, this is applicable for us. We are God's people now, so we can grab these verbs. Fear God, serve God, put away false gods, and choose you this day whom you'll serve. Great verbs that need music behind them. But then I also want you to take in the cause and effect picture in verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. There's a clear if-then statement, clear picture of cause and effect. But then take in the problem in verse 19. People, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or sins. Now, the next passage, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 30, page 381. <clears throat> As you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context. The nation of Israel, after Joshua, started doing what was right in their own minds. It's the time of the judges. And then they say, well, the judges thing isn't working, so let's get a king. So they asked God for a king. So 
the period of kings began. And if you know the story of the king story, you know, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 King, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you know the good king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king roller coaster that the nation of Israel went through. This is on one of those roller coaster rides. I'll back up a few chapters. You don't need to turn there. I've just given you a big picture. Amaziah was ruler in Judah, and he turned away from the Lord, and he made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. Amaziah's son was Uzziah. Uzziah was unfaithful to the Lord. Ahaz was, oh, there's Jotham also. Jotham was unfaithful. Ahaz was next. He didn't do what was right in God's eyes. And then next comes Ahaz's son, a man named Hezekiah. Hezekiah would be a good name to name your boy. I don't know any boys named Hezekiah, but that would be a good Bible name because he's got an awesome story. You may hear people refer at times to Hezekiah's reforms. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He told the people, Hezekiah, for generations this people of God have forgotten about God and in fact turned to worshiping the Baals. And he said, our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. He said, my sons, do not now be negligent. For the Lord has chosen you, Israel, to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and make offerings for him. Hezekiah was drawing these people back to God. And in chapter 30, he's going to reinstitute this thing called Passover, the thing that we looked at last week. So he sends out messengers into all the land. And here's the message that he sent. Look over in chapter 30, beginning in verse 6. So couriers went throughout all of Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, (coughs) now collect verbs again, return to the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And look for cause and effect. That he may turn again to the remnant of you who've escaped from the land of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation. You see cause and effect? Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord. Good verb. Come to his sanctuary, which he's consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. It's a great picture of cause and effect. And it makes total sense if you're looking at it. What it looks like is, if we do this, then God will do this. It looks like John chapter 14 too. If you have his commandments, if you keep his commandments, then he loves you. And he will manifest himself to you. And he will make his home with you. Clear pictures, it seems, of cause and effect. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to keep your finger in Second Chronicles. Mark that page or put a piece of paper in there and turn to Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> As you're turning there, I'm going to share some other passages with you. I want to show you that this theme of these strong verbs that the people of God are to engage 
continues in our New Testament. It may not be a surprise to you. What I'm showing you right now might be like, yeah, no duh, man. I know we're supposed to fear him. I know we're supposed to put away false gods. I know we're supposed to choose him. I know if we've been away from him, we're supposed to return to him. I know that we're not supposed to be stiff-necked. I know that we're not supposed to be like our daddies who serve foreign gods. I know that if we return to him, then he will return to us. I know all those things. I've got to establish this for where we're going in the second part of this message. Now, here's some passages. I want you to stay over there in Exodus chapter 20, but just listen to these passages. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, watch the verb, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You could insert, I urge you to obey the living God. I urge you to keep his ways, to have his, way, his ways. We can insert the things that we've engaged in John 14 in that passage. But right here, we just grab a couple more verbs. Walk in a manner worthy. Here's the next one. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Don't go there, just listen. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, drumbeat, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Braveheart. Man, I can come and just see you standing side by side, faithful and true, doing the verbs that the people of God do. And here's the last one, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. He encouraged the church at Colossia to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There it is again, walk in a manner worthy of God, pleasing Him, effect. It's cause and effect. Now, if these passages were, were all we had, then we might look at these passages and believe that we have tremendous agency and responsibility. We may see these verbs and say, man, we do these verbs and God is affected. We cause these things to happen and God has to respond. We could look at John 14 by itself and say, if I have and keep, then he manifests himself and he makes his home with me. Effect, blam. If we're good boys, then God makes his home with us. And God will love us. And God will bless us. Effect. If these passages that we've just engaged were all we had, these verbs and God's response, I want to tell you right now, it would make for a very big man and a very small God. This may be the first occasion that you've ever had to consider this. That's why there's treasure in this. It would make for a really big man and a very small God. For God would just respond to what we're doing. God would be just the one that works the effects. And we're the one that works the cause. I, I'm going to give it a name. Verb myopia. Some of y'all that know what myopia is and nearsightedness. 
Where you're so focused on what you're doing that you don't see what's out beyond you and around you and underneath you and the air that you're breathing as you're focusing on this thing. You're nearsighted. We, the church, can be verb myopic with no view to God's role in the whole thing as anything other than an effector or an affected, excuse me, because we would be the effector. Man, it would make us active and it would make our God simply reactive. It doesn't sound like God to me. In fact, it makes me sound like God if he's just responding to what I do. And I'm going to tell you right now, this would continue to leave us with the problem that we saw in Joshua chapter 24. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or sins. So knock yourself out doing your verbs. Guess what? You're toast because of his holiness. Because even with your best verbs, you still transgress and sin. Man, if we just, this is just myopic. And it's a bummer too. Because you're like, I'm doomed. But we can pan out from these little lists of our verbs. We can pan out from this to see what's behind and what's underneath and what's running through our verbs. Some of those verbs that we've grabbed so far. Fear, choose, serve, return, walk worthily, conduct yourselves, strive side by side. Let's pan out to see God's role and see what God's actually doing more than just reacting to what we do. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Let me see if I can find it. I want you to pay attention now to God's verbs. If you want to take notes, then all the notes that you've taken, put a separate column where God's verbs are listed. And here's the first one. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered. This isn't Moses saying that. That's God saying that. God's saying, you can't even remember my name except that I cause it in you. You can't even remember who I am except that I work that in you. Here's another picture of that. Psalm 111. If you're fast, you can flip there. If not, no worries. I'll turn there. Psalm 111, verse 4. David had a view of this. He said, He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is the one that's driving the verbs to even remember his name. He causes us to remember. The next passage, 2 Samuel chapter 22. I told you I was going to give you page numbers, and I hadn't given one of them yet in a while. 2 Samuel chapter 22, page 275. This is David's song before he died. David had a view of this. He said, I'll let you turn there. David said, I'm going to start in verse 32 just because. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God, this God I'm writing about right now in my final words before I go off and die, is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. 
Remember how we defined blamelessness a couple weeks ago? Linebackerness. That that's the picture of obedience. He said, I didn't muster that. I didn't grit my teeth and become like a linebacker. I didn't do this. God made my way blameless. David has a view of that. The next passage, you don't need to turn there. You can just listen. Psalm chapter 18, verse 32. David again, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. See, linebackerness, blamelessness is not something that you can muster. It's not something that you can conjure up. It's not something that you can stuff into your kids with some high-speed curriculum. It's not something that a pastor can force into a body. It's something that God does. He wrought it in David. It's not something that we can create, set our face like flint, grit our teeth and say, there it is. David says, my blamelessness didn't come or didn't cause his love for me. His love for me caused my blamelessness. The next passage I do want you to see is in Ezekiel chapter 36. Remember, we're collecting verbs that God does. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Ezekiel chapter 36. The book of Ezekiel is potentially one of the rawest book of books in our Bible because it tells us a lot about our real condition. It tells us a lot about what God's actually done. And I want you to see this in Ezekiel chapter 36. <clears throat> Starting in verse 22. He's writing to the house of Israel who's been terribly disobedient. Who's whored after foreign gods. That's his word, not mine. He says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. It's not for your sake that I'm about to act. And then in verse 26, how's he going to act? He says, I will give you, you bunch of whores, really is what he says. Connect the passage that we read that Joshua talked about over there. It's impossible for you to please God. I will give you guys a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Who's got the verbs here? Who's causing this to happen? God is. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will do this. You can't muster that, boys. That's what he's saying. I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. I'm going to cause you to be careful to obey my rules. Verse 32 it's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. You're not the center of this gospel. I am, is what he says. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. In chapter 37, he says, I will cause breath, verse 5, to enter you and you shall live. And why is he doing all this? In verse 6, you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 13, you shall know that I am the Lord. The, the last verse, verse 14, you shall know that I am the Lord. Why is God causing this to happen? Not for our sake, but for his sake. And he's the one that's driving. He is the sovereign, divine, capital M, mover. 
If all you have is these other passages, you're sitting there looking at them going, I'm the driver here. But then you engage these other passages and you go, wait a second. God is the one who's causing me to even remember his name. God is the one who's causing his wondrous works to be remembered. God is the one who is making my way blameless. And God is the one who is equipping me with strength. And God is the one who's taking out my old rotten heart and giving me a new one. I didn't muster a new one. He did it. And he will cause us to walk in his statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. Man, I, I don't know how important these passages are to you, but I know to some people, these are treasure. These are treasure. Go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. Listen to these passages as you turn there. First Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We don't even become Christians except that He causes it in us. Man, I... I'm flabbergasted by how controversial this is for so many people because it's all through our Bibles. God is the divine mover. The reason it's such a shock for so many people is because all you've ever had is a diet of the myopia, a diet of your verbs. But when you see his big capital B verbs in and around and through and underneath and throughout fueling your verbs, then you realize, oh, it's him doing it. I'm, I'm okay with that. He's the sovereign here. I don't even come to faith in him except that he causes it in me. Because all I've got is this rotten, stony heart. I need somebody to rip that thing out and put a new one in there for his name's sake. Here's another picture before we look at Second Chronicles chapter 30 again. Hebrews chapter 6. Don't turn there. Just listen. The writer of the book of Hebrews has just really scolded these guys because they're still drinking milk. And they ought to be eating meat by now. They ought to be teaching others, not the elementary things, but the more developed things. But they're still drinking milk. And in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, Hebrews, let us leave elementary doctrine of Christ. You could just insert, Choose you this day whom you'll serve. This is a charge. This is another verb. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And the next verse he says, and this we will do if God permits. What's this? Go back to the first verse. We will go on to maturity. This we will grow up to maturity if God permits. The thing that we don't realize when we're so focused on our little verbs is we don't realize that we don't even grow up to maturity except that God permits it. That's just craziness. But God is sovereign and Lord over all things. And his verbs are really what drives everything. If these were our only satellites, the second list of passages that we've engaged 
If these were our only satellites, we might see ourselves as completely passive agents. Robots, maybe. Uh, uh. Obey. I will obey. Yes, God is good. That's what I hear from people whenever people start talking about the absolute sovereignty of God. What are you saying? We're robots? No. If these passages were all we had, we may see ourselves as robots. Completely passive, programmed by God, rousted out by God, mobilized. We might see ourselves as completely inactive until God overwhelms us, compelling us and propelling us to act. These passages by themselves seem to make really little of man's agency and much of God's. So there's got to be some way they work together. These first list of verbs, these big verbs for man, and these bigger verbs for God, there's got to be the way these things fit together. So we'll look back at our passage in 2 Chronicles and see if we might have some clues. Remember, Hezekiah <coughs> sent out a message to the people, and he charged them. He said, return to the Lord, God of Abraham. Don't be like your daddy and brothers. Don't stiffen your neck. If you return to the Lord, then God will return to you. And now look down at the next verse, verse 10. So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher or Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Now here's the sweet message for how these things work together. But the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. God did this. If you're looking at these first verses, you're going, man, Hezekiah is awesome. Look how great he is. And look at the things that Hezekiah is doing. His verbs are so big. And he's charging the people with these verbs, return, don't be like your daddy, don't stiffen your neck, return to the Lord. And then some of these people are responding. The men of Asher, go men of Asher, go men of Manasseh, go men of Zebulun, humbling yourself and coming to Jerusalem. Man, you guys are awesome. But then you read the next verse and you go, wait a second. God did this. God is the one that caused this. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and princes commanded by the word of the Lord. He is the sovereign mover. His verbs drive everything. There's treasure in this. His verbs drive everything. Our verbs work within his verbs. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. I want you to see this. <coughs> Philippians chapter 2, <coughs> page 981. Starting in verse 12. Here's treasure. the Philippians and he says therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only is in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling 
that's the only verse we had, man. That verse would connect with that first list of passages that we engage, wouldn't it? These verbs. Man, here's another verb. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But thankfully, there's a next verse that says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Man, if we didn't have that second verse, we would be doomed. If we didn't have that second verse, then we would be stuck with this reality that Joshua introduced over here where he said, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. We would be doomed. I pass on this verb myopia because we're doomed with that little list of verbs. If that's all there is, we're stuck. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Go ahead, knock yourself out and see how you do. Those of you that want to understand God's role of sovereignty in your parenting, work out your parenting with with fear and trembling and see how you do. I'm thankful that how my kids turn out is not dependent on me. But it's God who wills to work in the heart of man. I'm thankful it's God at work that's actually the divine sovereign mover behind all things. I'm thankful that even my own salvation is not dependent on my efforts, my verbs, Because I come up short, and I know you do too. But thankfully, he's got some big verbs behind it that are doing something better than our best verb. Look over at chapter 3. Same book. Starting in verse 8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, pay attention to those words, may, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then here's the sweetness in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, the resurrection from the dead, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see it there? You see our verbs embedded within his verbs? You see Paul's verbs saying, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see how those verbs work together? New American Standard says, I press, ho- I press on to lay hold of that which has already laid hold of me. That's treasure. Because if it's up to our lady hold of, we're done. We're toast. But he has laid hold of us. Turn the page to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul's writing about his role in the church and what he does basically is his job description. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, what? The presentation of everyone in Christ as mature. I toil. Paul says, for this I toil. 
For this I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. For this I fear. For this I choose. For this I serve. You could insert. This is his verb. I proclaim. I warn. I teach. For this effect, the presentation of everyone mature in Christ, and this I struggle and I toil as struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Do you see it? Do you see his big sweet verb behind Paul's little verbs? There's treasure in this. I cannot even describe the treasure of engaging this and enjoying this. Proverbs chapter 21, 31, it says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Some of you can think about what it must be like for a warrior to go into battle. You're going to make your horse ready. You're going to sharpen your sword. You're going to go over your sword drills. You're going to make sure you're well hydrated, well fed. But what does he say? The victory belongs to the Lord. I'm going to work out my little verbs as if it's up to me, but all the while I'm going to know that it's his verb working in me and on me and through me. We work hard, fearing, striving, putting away foreign gods, choosing him this day, returning to him, walking worthily, striving side by side, hear the drum roll, pressing on, working out, We do these things, and I don't ever want to take away from that list of verbs. We do these things within the work of a God who makes our way blameless. He's the divine mover. Within the work of a God who causes us to obey. He's the one that's doing this whole thing. And we're just working within it. What happens when you see yourself at work within the work of a sovereign God? Five treasures. First of all, glory goes to the right person. When something awesome happens, and it's your verbs that you think got it accomplished, who gets the glory? You do. But when you see his verbs in the right place, and you realize that you cannot have his ways and keep his ways and love him except that he gives you a new heart to love him, then he gets the glory as he's supposed to. Secondly, it fuels endurance. You're going to get tuckered out if you think all your verbs are what's responsible for the outcome. Elijah got tuckered out. Elijah, I fear, got too focused on himself. As you read the story of Elijah in 1 Kings, the story of Elijah, he's going toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal, shoot out the OK Corral, He wins. God's fire comes down, consumes not only his sacrifice, but also the prophets of Baal and even the prophets. And Elijah's like, man, this thing is amazing. This thing's turning out really good. And then it rains when he says it's going to rain. And then he runs back to Jezreel and actually outruns Ahab on his chariot. And and, um, Elijah's on foot. I mean, these amazing things are happening to Elijah. As soon as he finds out Jezebel's after him, he's done. It's like, I quit. (laughs) I'm tuckered. And the thing that you hear from Elijah over and over again in this story is you hear, I, even I only, am a prophet of the Lord. I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life. He says it three different times in this story. He's too focused on his own verbs, I fear. 
And you can almost hear God saying with the, with the wind and the whisper and these things that he's showing him, saying, Elijah, this situation isn't dependent on you and your verbs. I'm at work in and through this story. I'm the mover here. And by the way, I've got 7,000 of you. It's not just you and you only. I'm sovereign over this thing. I'm the causer. There are times where I think I can't pastor this church. I, even I. Or I think with the other elders, we, even we, can't pastor this church. And then we exhale when we see the sovereignty of God and we go, oh, thankfully he's the divine mover. There may be times where some of you as small group leaders are thinking, I, even I, can't shepherd this small group. This is hard. Good thing it's not up to you. Good thing God's the divine mover behind it, in it, and through it. There may be times where you're shepherding your family, single moms, dads who are just trying to keep it in the middle of the road. I, even I, can't keep this thing in the middle of the road. Good thing it's not up to you. Because the sovereign mover is in it and behind it and through it. And his verbs are at work. You'll get tuckered out if you think it's up to you. Third, you'll learn to be needy. Understanding how obedience works fosters dependence on him and his verbs. And what that dependence on him and his verbs is called is called worship. And when you see your verbs as accomplishing everything, guess what that's called? That's called sin. This is the difference between sin and worship. Fourth, you'll have a different view of salvation. I asked you to pay attention to Paul's maze in Philippians chapter 3, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. In the original language, those words, those mays, are called subjunctives. And those mays are like, I'm pretty sure about this, but it's not a done deal. Paul recognizes he's not the sovereign. He recognizes that it's God's verbs at work. Viewing God as the sovereign mover, as the divine mover in all things, will change how you view salvation. And you'll view him as the one that does the saving, not you who saves yourself. It's a healthy view. You might actually write some songs like we sung this morning and mean it. Songs like, May your grace, Lord, like a fetter, Bind my wandering heart to thee, because my verbs fail, but I know your verbs don't. And I'm begging you to put a big verb of grace around me, because I need it. Lastly, it'll impact your prayer life. If you realize that these verbs that you're working within, that you're working on, that you're about, are embedded within the big verbs of God, it will change your prayer life. First of all, it'll give you a prayer life. Because you realize, man, this thing that I'm hard at, the outcome is completely dependent on the God that's underneath and around and behind and through it. So you'll start to pray. God, I need to consult you on this. God, I need to understand this. You'll hear things like Solomon's prayer. I'll share with you briefly. As he dedicated the temple... Solomon said, The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him. 
to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. May he incline our hearts. You hear him praying? Lord, please keep us close to you. Let the words of mine with which I've pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. Solomon's pleading that God will be about his verbs. You hear that? may change your prayer life like the psalmist in 119. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law because I can't even see them except that you open my eyes to see them. It'll change your prayer life. It'll give you a prayer life. I wrestled with this passage or this, uh, excuse me, this sermon this morning. I wrestled with it because I thought, man, it's potentially too lofty for folks. Not a lot of funny stories. Not a lot of things to kind of keep people entertained. My hope and my prayer for you this morning is that from this sermon that you can see a smaller view of your role and a bigger view of God's. If you have no view of God's role, you're doomed. And if you have no view of your role, then you're lazy. See, we are hard at work, working as if it's up to us within his sovereign work, and we need to be thankful for that. We need to treasure that. Let me pray. God, I pray that you will do something with these words. I pray that people will chew on these thoughts. We'll talk about these thoughts, that husbands and wives or friends will talk between themselves and slave away at understanding and all the while knowing that it's going to be you that opens the eyes of our hearts to understand. I ask you to reveal these deep, sweet, sweet, meaty truths to us. I ask for permission that we may grow up to maturity, to worship stronger and harder and truer, knowing that you are the divine mover. Lord, I'm thankful that you are the divine mover in the work of salvation because if it's up to me, I'm done. I'm thankful that you arrest us with a love for you, that you take out an old stony heart and that you give us a new one, that you do all that for your namesake. Lord, as we look at John 14 and look at the true lover, we pray and recognize that we cannot love except that you cause us to love. We pray that we may love you more. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We have the Lord's Supper. And I want to share a passage with you from Luke chapter 7. Excuse me, Luke chapter 22, verse 7. <clears throat> Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? 
and he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This thing that he encouraged them to remember, this, this, this do this was the Passover meal. We talked about it last week. It was a remembrance of God's deliverance. In this case, it would have been a couple thousand years before, 1,500 years before Christ. Jesus said, now at this table, he said, do this thing that you've been doing for 1,500 years where you're thinking about a little Passover lamb, now do it remembering me because I'm your new Passover lamb. Something that was true about the Passover, it was a time um, of doing what God said, obeying what God said, of remembering, the celebrating the Passover was remembering God's deliverance, but few people realize that it's also a time to remind God to remember us. Even in this context where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, there's an element of God, we're asking you to remember us as well. Passover was not enough to just sacrifice a lamb, but that blood actually had to be displayed. Whenever you took a lamb into your house for Passover, in the first Passover they kept, kept it in a house eight days or so, and then they took it down, they slit its throat, and that wasn't enough. When God passed over the, the Egypt at midnight, that wouldn't have been enough to be protected. You actually had to take the hyssop branch and dip it in the blood and slather up the doorpost so that it was displayed. So as God passed over, he would say, oh, yeah, I remember them. They've done what I told them to do. These are my people. He did the same thing with the flood. He said, I established my covenant with you, Noah, and with your offspring after you, and with every living creature that's with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it's for every beast of the earth. I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember, is what he says. It's not like God's forgetful. Uh it's a picture of relationship. It's a picture of covenant. He says, I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. Convert that into the Passover. I will remember my covenant with Abraham when I see that blood on that doorpost. So display it. It's not enough for it to be sacrificed. It must be displayed. You may not realize it, 
when we take the Lord's Supper, we're displaying it. God, remember us. Remember us. We are behind and bathed in and soaked in the blood of Jesus. Remember your covenant with us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Here it is. Remember us. And our faithful God will. Let's be mindful of this as we take the supper this morning. Let's take and eat. And take two.
stand behind the blood of Jesus and that's the only thing that gives us any hope and we're thankful that it's by his absolute obedience by his perfect love that we are counted righteous Lord we are thankful for your big awesome verbs Lord I pray that they will just give us a new view of our own just kind of blown away with the thought that uh what is man that you are mindful of us to give us a single verb? And you've given us so much in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for him and his finished work. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song. Y'all are here this morning. And uh, I, uh, I want to encourage you. If you heard some things today that were just like, man, that's hard. I'm trying to figure that out. I'm not sure I quite got that. Um, there's nothing wrong with listening to a sermon again. I mean, for real. There's some guys in this church, it's funny, they come by and get a hard copy of that CD. We have them out there on the counter. And they listen to those jokers five, six times. And about six months later, they'll say something about a sermon. I'm like, did I say that? <laughs> they know better than I do. And, you know, there's something to it. You have to process things. You have to gnaw on things. You have to give things time to digest. That's called meditation. So it's a good thing. So don't be afraid to listen to something again because I promise you God will speak to you and he'll speak to you in a more clear way every time you hear it. You have the scripture in front of you. You know, you may have been, um, something could have distracted you this morning or you may have had plans that just kind of got in the way of it or I could have gotten in the way of it. But God may open the eyes of your heart when you sit and listen to it again. So I encourage you, it's not the, the matter of knowing something, it's the manner of knowing something that differentiates between somebody just knowing a fact and somebody being a worshiper. I mean, lots of people know lots of facts about God, but they're not worshipers. You realize that? I mean, you could, I got that this morning. Huh, it's cool. Let's go eat some lunch. You never get another thought. You just collected a fact. But the manner of knowing it is when it becomes part of your language and part of your uh, conversation. And you talk about it as a family. It becomes the air that you breathe. Man, thankfully, God's at work in this. Aren't you liberated by that, wife? God's at work in the heart of our children. Thankfully, it's not up to us or how they turn out. Or they'd be doomed. Right? There's some liberating realities here that you get your hands around, you get your heart around, and you're talking about soaring in worship. God is good. I encourage you to just gnaw on these things. If, if you heard something today, too, that you're like, man, I have a difficult time processing. I need to talk with an elder um, or a small group leader about that. Please do that. It is not an offense to say, what did you mean about that? I'm, I mean, you won't do it with a scowl on your face like I just did, you know. You won't be not, what did you mean by that? No, I'm kidding. You, I don't care how you do it as long as you do it. For real. It's not an offense. It's, in fact, it's, a, it's encouragement because it says that you're processing something. You're chewing on something. And we'll go to the Word. So bring your Bible. 
Don't be afraid of that. It's not dueling either. It's not sword fighting. It's truth searching and truth engaging. So if you're hearing something for the first time, how does this work? How does that work? Let's, let's open our Bibles and search and reason together and see what God says. That's a good thing. Um, and lastly, if you don't know what it means to follow Christ, if you know, the Lord's led you here or you're visiting here with a friend and, or you've been visiting a few weeks, and you're like, man, I know this is true. I just don't know what I do. How do I respond to this? Then I encourage you to get with an elder. Uh, there's your contact information on the back of the bulletin. Uh, you can fill out a little card and drop that in the, the uh, offering. Uh, you can grab likely the person sitting next to you and say, hey, who can I talk to about this? And we'll get you connected with somebody who can process this with you. It's not going to be an easy, quippy little thing. It's going to be the beginning of a journey together. And we'll, we'll go the distance with you and show you what it means to follow Christ. It's awesome. It's life. And um, it's a privilege. It'd be a privilege to talk with you. Y'all stand, and I'll dismiss you, and y'all can enjoy your day. God, we are thankful for the time we've had together this morning. Uh, we just pray that this... These truths that we've engaged this morning will find purchase. We're thankful that uh, that's something that you do. It's not dependent on, on us or our skill or even our attentiveness that you can work beyond and through all things. And we just pray that you will, that these things will find a home in us and that we'll see you at work. We'll be relieved, we'll be encouraged, and uh, we'll be thankful for your finished work. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, y'all. Y'all have a great day.